Hey, all you beautiful souls, and welcome to the Eat, Pray, Slay podcast. My name is Shalane Carter. I'm your host. I'm also a personal trainer, yoga teacher, meditation guide, and spiritual leader. This podcast is the perfect convergence of all things health, wellness, yoga, and spirituality, and really learning to break through limitations and open yourself and your spirit up to receiving all the abundance the universe has to offer. Each week, along with myself and many other awesome guests, you'll begin to expand your knowledge and insight on how to level up and step into your highest self. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hey, everyone. I'm so grateful that you are here with us on the Eat, Pray, Slay podcast. I am thrilled to be sitting here today with Mackenzie, who is my wonderful, wonderful mentor and beautiful friend. She, We met in... Uh, yoga teacher training. So she trained me and has years of experience. Um, Not only is she one of the most kind and like radiates love person, I, I, she is so knowledgeable in not only just the asanas, the physical practice of yoga, but her knowledge of the other eight limbs of Ashtanga yoga, which go into more of the spiritual side is just so vast and it's something that her and I really, really connected on. So welcome Mackenzie. Thank you for being here. Oh, Shalane. Thank you for having me. I'm really grateful. (laughs) I'm so excited to get to talk about yoga because it's gets so put into the category of like a exercise, I think. Um, And you see a lot of like asanas and things like that, but I would love for you to give um, all of our listeners a little bit of a background of just like how how you found yoga. Oh man, well, I found yoga. I was training to become, or I guess go to school for musical theater. And I actually went to visit my aunt when I was about 15. This is when I was like, okay, I need to buckle down and figure out what I'm gonna do in college. And there was this uh, yoga studio right next to the the dance school that I was training over the summer. And it was a Bikram yoga studio. So that was my mm-hmm. first exposure was the, the Bikram series. And I would go there after the full day of intensive dance training and take yoga after, which is pretty insane now that I'm That's thinking a lot. back. Body, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was a lot. And the, the Bikram series is pretty, pretty militant and very difficult and demanding, which I think is what drew me in at first. I thought that it was a a really big challenge. So yeah, that was my first exposure. This was almost 13 years ago now. That's great. So how long have you been teaching yoga? I've been teaching yoga since I was 21. So almost seven years, which doesn't seem that long. (laughs) I feel like I've been teaching longer. Right. You're like, I teach it every day, all day. (laughs) (laughs) It does feel like I've been teaching longer. But I've um, been practicing consistently, uh, I guess, yeah, pretty much since I found it. Once I started, I didn't really stop, which kind of happens to a lot of people. Once you're exposed, there, there is that sort of addicted phase for sure. Yes. And, and um, I'm going to so enjoy our conversations today because I think a lot of people are like, oh, like, they feel that same, that like addiction to coming to class. But um, I think some of the addiction is actually the feeling, not necessarily like the flexibility or the workout. Um, And which, so kind of leads me right into, um, let's go over a little bit about the eight limbs of Ashtanga yoga. So you spoke that you started in Bikram. 
yoga, which is very much like same, is it 26 or 27 postures? 26, yeah. So you do the same 26 postures on your right and your left side. And um, in Ashtanga yoga, you it is the same series as well. Is that kind of yeah. what drew you into Ashtanga? Yeah, it's interesting that the very first time I was exposed to Ashtanga, I actually wasn't the biggest fan <laughs> for, for the reason Isn't that, that how it everything is. works. It's like your partner, you know, and stuff like that. People are like, at first I didn't like them. <laughs> yeah at first I mean it is the same thing so from maybe the the first viewpoint or maybe like your first exposure you you feel like it could get boring or it's the same thing but once you spend a little more time with something that's really where depth kind of comes from is where you really sit with the same knowledge again and again and again and return so that it can you know really settle deeper and deeper so I find the practice to be just endless Ashtanga in general, not just the, the asanas, but the, the wisdom behind it, like the longer you stay with something, the more that will naturally uncover. So I find it to be just really deep and that's what keeps it interesting. Not only, like I said, the, the asanas, but just the philosophy behind it. So the eight limbs of yoga are originally codified and systemized by uh, Indian sage, his name was Patanjali, and he wrote the, the Yoga Sutras. And the Yoga Sutras kind of outline the eight limbs of yoga. And they're really just kind of limbs or like um, rungs on a ladder of how to not only do yoga, but live yoga. So it's it's more of this codified system of a way of living rather than just what what we think of when we think of yoga now, which is like all the stuff that happens on the mat. It's much more than that. And that's kind of what he dives into with his eight limbs of yoga. Okay. And so, so the eight limbs are yama, the niyamas, asanas, which is the physical practice that everyone, for the most part, recognizes. Um, pratyahara, pranayama. Uh, I'm, I feel like I always say these ones wrong. So, <laughs> Daharana, dhyana, dhyana, samadhi. Right. Yes. The yes. These ones, I don't know why, like it feels jumbled always in my mouth, but um. <laughs> yeah, Sanskrit, Sanskrit's an interesting language. It's actually like a perfect language. They thought about the, the vibration as well. So it's very meditative. Even when you just say the words, it's meant to like invoke a certain vibration in your body. So <laughs> yes. it's not only a mouthful, but it's, it's, it's a vibration too. It's clearly like my vibration does not like the harness. <laughs> <and the dance. laughs> Well, and the more that you, and this is why people get hooked because you do not realize the subtleties that are underlying all of just practicing yoga. Yeah. So, and the yamas and the niyamas, the first two talk about ways in which you live, um, both your internal, how you live like in your own mind and in your body and things like that. And then how you deal with external as well. Um, do let's let's like where to start like i know i know where to start Woo. no you 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 place it so beautifully i think another thing to kind of um maybe realize is that the first six so yama niyama asana pranayama pratyahara daharana those those first six are things that we do and then the last two stages or the last rungs of the ladder are things that kind of happen to us so the whole idea in Patanjali, when he's saying yoga, he's not, he's not meaning the asanas, he's meaning yoga as a state of mind, like 
um, it's a state of being. So there's, there's only so much action you can do, but then there's also this like surrender to the experience. So it's actually meant to be an experience. So it's interesting when you look at these limbs in terms of like how you live, you're kind of saying there's only so much I can do. And then there's also this like surrender and hopefully something will happen to me. So it's really kind of a beautiful effort and release situation. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I totally like hear what you're saying there as far as the, I think people, because they go to yoga to practice, um, they're going, they're doing something and they're, they're going after something and kind of achieving something. But some of that is at the end, this is why I'm like, when people leave for Savasana, like at the end where you're just laying there and surrendering, that is where like all the good stuff comes is because mm -hmm. you can only do so much where some of it, you just have to like, in, in a very like, this very like cliche, but like, like give it to God type of thing and just lay there and let the experience happen to you where you don't have all, where you're not kind of creating the experience. You're letting the experience happen and letting yeah. it happen. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so the first couple, uh, the yamas are ahimsa, sateya, asteya, brahmacharya, and aparagraha. So yes. can we talk a little bit about those? Give, tell everybody what the yamas are. Okay. Okay. So the yamas, <laughs> I, I mean, you could spend a whole, oh my gosh, a long time talking just about the yamas and the niyamas, but essentially the yamas are the, the don'ts. So they're the don'ts for the society. They're kind of like the, the restraints or they provide this sort of eth ethical guideline of um, almost like parameters that are set to help you understand like what is pure. They're very similar actually to... Um, Thich Nhat Hanh's five precepts. So you, you listed them off before, but the first one is ahimsa, which means, usually it's translated to non-harming. In Sanskrit, anytime you have an A in front of something, it takes the, the word to follow and negates it. So ahimsa would mean harm, and then the A in front of it makes it non-harming. Or if you get a little more specific and detailed, you could think of it as the opposite of harming. Mm -hmm. So in yogic, concept or philosophy there's this word called dharma and dharma really kind of means like your your destiny or your your life's work or purpose so the the yogis understand that the dharma of a human or just us as people is to serve one another to to help heal one another mm -hmm. so it's basically calling us to do not only non-harming but the opposite of harming so what would that be it's like it's compassion, it's peace, it's mercy, it's loving everything. So it's kind of calling you to a higher state of consciousness to see everything as something to be not only treated with respect, but helped, like we're here to help one another. Well, and I, I love this one too, because the more research that I've done on it, it's, it, it never specifies humans per se. It's mm -hmm. not harming to all things, including like yourself. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like animals, the earth, I mean, just all things like coming at, from it of a perspective of love, like you were saying, that doesn't, um, that, that doesn't leave anything out. It's an all-inclusive love. Yeah. And really, I mean, you're, you're really nailing it on the head. The, the main, okay. So if we kind of back up just a little bit, the, the very first yoga sutra that Patanjali says is yoga chitta vritti narodaha. And that, that's the first sutra, it's Yoga Sutra 1.1. So he's saying yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. 
So what are those fluctuations that we have? Like what are those mind waves? And basically saying that all of your mind thoughts or those waves come from two emotions, love or fear. And fear is really the, the king vritti there, the king thoughts. It's kind of catapults or influences every single one of our, our actions from that. So you're saying that the antidote to fear is love. So it's learning how to kind of reprogram your operating system to more often operate from love instead of fear. Yeah, which I think takes a lot of courage and, um, and stuff like that, that, that it's scary. It's scary sometimes when you stand up for something um, in, and encompassing all that love. It defies a lot of, I think, what has been taught by others and by other societal norms. And so sometimes coming from that place of love, even though it feels right, also feels scary. Um, yeah. But like embracing that, like remaining true to treating all things with reverence and love and kindness. Yeah, I think that's kind of a perfect segue into Satya, which is um, the next one. So Satya is the truthfulness is usually what it's translated for or not lying. So it's it's kind of calling you to be real more than be being nice however we just had before not harming so um it's it's really kind of interesting ahimsa and satya kind of dance with one another and they balance each other out mm-hmm. so you're keeping ahimsa from being a wimpy cop-out you're keeping non-violence from being a wimpy cop-out and satya or truthfulness from being a brutal weapon because truth truth you know is sometimes hard and it sometimes hurts because it's the truth (laughs) it's hard to hear sometimes it's hard to swallow so it's telling us to like approach truth with with knees knocking like realize like the the weight and the heaviness of truth yes um i i like i love it's so interesting how these two dance too because it even in omitting like the truth um sometimes causes harm or, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes then you're like, okay, well, I didn't, I didn't necessarily say anything. And sometimes saying nothing is still being untruthful. Mm. And so even like to look at it that way is it's not just, you know, being always like true and doing what's easy or doing what's right. It is even saying what's right, even though saying nothing would also create no waves. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you can already kind of see how these, these principles, like how many dimensions they can kind of affect. It's like ahimsa. Usually people think of that in terms of like their diet or trying to go for a vegetarian or vegan diet. And satya we think of in terms of like how you speak, but there's so many other dimensions or layers and levels that these can affect. And that's why it's like so interesting because it's so vast. It's like how, how many places can these principles touch my life? Right. It, it, it's a never ending journey of uncovering, really. Well, and that's why I think of when when people are like, oh, I'm a yogi or I live the, you know, people are like, oh, they're, you know, very into yoga or whatever. This is why people seem a certain way and seem very into yoga is because it stretches and touches all aspects of, of your life and of everyone's lives without even realizing it. Mm-hmm. Um the physical practice just helps to kind of illuminate some of these things, I think, in your mind. Totally, totally. Um, so that's just two, two of the five yamas. <laughs> still, so, going, still, trucking. still going, still going. So um, the next one would be kind of a stay or um, non-stealing, non-stealing. Um, and it's funny, the, the longer you kind of practice, like you're saying, the more, the more you practice, the more it kind of illuminates 
um, other areas that could be cleaned up in your life. This one is particularly recently kind of showing itself to me. I love, I love stuff. <laughs> I like to, I like to collect things and the, the, the and a party girl hawk kind of go hand in hand. That's what I like to call them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They kind of go hand in hand and I'll delve into that a little bit later, but Asteya means like non-stealing. So it's trying to encourage you to envelop or develop a minim, minimalist attitude and kind of ask yourself, do I, do I need to take more than I need? Right. And also kind of understand that nothing really, really truly belongs to me in the first place. So if I'm going to take something, then I need to be prepared and willing to give something back, back to that whole Dharma, Dharma calling of service and compassion and loving and healing. It's like, if I'm going to take anything, then what do I have to give back? Well, how can I serve rather than just take, take and take? Well, and I think too, it's, I mean, if anybody has ever lost their job or, um, you know, filed bankruptcy, anything like that, you realize how quickly your life and what you have, I'm doing air quotes, you can't see me, <laughs> but what you have can really disappear. Mm -hmm. You know, when someone passes away um, suddenly and stuff like that, all of your reality of how that experience was with that person or, you know, in that job literally becomes obsolete. Mm -hmm. And so I think in the spirit of just like realizing that nothing is truly yours, that in a society of where we have a tendency to accumulate and more is better, that really more just means more responsibility, more mm -hmm. like upkeep, more keeping up with the Joneses. Not that there's anything wrong with achieving and wanting experiences or things or, you know, stuff like that. But really in the, the terms of like, excess like look at all the storage units that we have and your homes are full and you can't park in the garage like do you need all of those things do you need to buy and like take those resources from the earth whether it be wood or you know whatever it is like you know all the excessive food storage and all the excessive like just this excessiveness do you really need those things to survive yeah yeah, so we said that ahimsa and satya kind of go together. Um, asteya or non-stealing, which is what we're speaking to now, also kind of goes with a parigraha, and that's the the non-hoarding or possessiveness. And I think that's what you're really, really, really touching on is the the possessiveness and the really when you start to gain too much and hoard too much, you're kind of saying like I have this belief that. I do not believe that I'm supplied for my future. Right. <laughs> like right. it's kind of saying yeah. that. Right. I, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no you go. No, you go. <laughs> no, you go. Yeah. I mean, it's really just saying like, I, I don't, I have this lack in faith, whether it's God or the universe, however you want to um, kind of, you know, acknowledge this greater, this greater spirit and saying, I don't, I don't believe that I'm being cared for. Um, and that you're saying, that he would rather just hold on to that rather than trust and support and believe that you're supported. So a parigraha, the, the next one kind of liberates us from that greed because at some point, the things that nourish us poison us, <laughs> right? Yeah. There's this- Too there much is, of vitamins are bad too, you know? Yeah, there is too much of a good thing. Like too much sun eventually gives you a sunburn. Too much sugar gives you a bellyache. And like you said so beautifully, anything that we cling to creates a maintenance problem like a responsibility once you have it you're then you then have the responsibility to take care of it so a stay a non-stealing and a parigraha non-hoarding help us stop identifying with what we have outside of us 
and rather tell us to take a look at what we have within us so that you can maintain your balance, your equanimity, your upeksha in both famine and wealth. So that no matter what's going on in your external world, you're still balanced, calm, happy, peaceful, grateful. And it's interesting because as you're saying this, I'm just thinking like it really makes you take care of your internal landscape, what's going on in your mind and taking care of like your physical body and like your health instead of being so concerned about your external body, like what, what your surroundings are, your home, your, although those, you know, having your needs met is one thing, but really I think we are discouraged in our society from, or have been in the past. I think it's definitely making a comeback of really being mindful of how we take care of our thoughts, how we take care of our, um, our relationships with ourselves and our love that we hold in our hearts for other people. And instead of placing that love and importance and um, value on what you have externally, it's more of what you have internally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the the yogic. <laughs> that's really when like the yoga is working for you when you stop kind of identifying yourself with the external validations and you really settle into the piece of intrinsic self worth that it's like already there. Right. Yeah. yeah, which I, I mean, this bleeds right into brahmacharya to the non-excess. Oh, this is my favorite one, and I say that. Save the best for last. I know. Well, I say I say that after everyone, and it's, it's <laughs> funny they they all kind of intertwine. Of course, like when when you're talking about one, the longer you talk, the the more you end up talking about another one. So they they definitely all um, connect and play play into one another. But brahmacharya is usually translated for like a celibacy or um, People usually, you know, reserve it or discuss it when they're just speaking about like inappropriate sex. But really, a brahmacharya, another way that I've seen it translated is walking with God or walking yeah. with walking with the divine. So that's my favorite interpretation of it too. Yeah, mine too. So it's it's asking you to look at your your energy um, and look at how you expense your energy. And it's saying, don't waste your energy frivolously. Understand that any exchange or interaction that you have is sacred. You're walking with God. So you're, any sort of um, interaction or connection that you have with another is, is divine. So uphold that as like a sacred exchange. Don't just you know, throw, throw yourself at anything or anyone. Understand the difference between enough and excess. So use your forces wisely for your, for your work, for your culture, for your spiritual growth. Yeah. rather than just you know this that or whatever well and and again it's like okay you place the value your in you know your value is so high on your internal self and your worth that you don't go seeking somewhere else for that validation or for that love that you really cultivate the spirit of love from internally from your from your work that you're doing on yourself from um your internal kind of experiences rather than feeling that outside kind of like um, you need from outside in order to feel good inside um, mm -hmm. and just kind of flipping that script. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So brahmacharya, like I said, is usually like celibacy or fasting, but really you could kind of think of it just as like energy management. So instead of thinking so much about like time management, it's like, how am I using my energy and what am I doing to replenish that energy and what what helps me gain more energy through my connection and communication with others. So I real quick, I like to also think of this one 
as if we learn to be very present in the moment, we really take pleasure in that moment and you don't have the need to kind of look, always be on to the next, which is how you kind of get into, into excess. Yeah. You've kind of learned to appreciate the moment as is without judgment, without expectation, without anything for the person, the circumstance, whatever, but just really enjoying and being present. So you don't feel like you need to end that moment to then get to the next one, you know? No, that's beautiful. And that really kind of outlines exactly what these five, specifically yamas, the, the don'ts for society, the restraints, that outlines how they help you live a, a life that's free of conflict with others. So that's yeah. what it's trying to do. It's trying to say, hey, listen, like we are humans and we have this tendency to go for extremes because we're sensation junkies. Mm-hmm. So how do, I, how do I live a life in the middle? And it's calling everybody to do that. Like understand where, where the middle line is and where is too much and too little. Cause we're not meant to, you know, totally not enjoy life. It's just, you know, learning how to not be so pulled to enjoy too much to the, to the point where it hurts us. Yeah. Cause again, anything, anything, you can have too much of a good thing. Yeah, that's true. Okay. So those are the yamas. Um, and there are five of them, the ahimsa, non-harming, satya, not lying or truthfulness, Asteya, non-stealing, aparigraha, non-hoarding or um, possessiveness, and then brahmacharya, which is the, the energy management or walking with God. So those would be the, the five yamas. Now then, um, if those were for like the don'ts for society of like how to interact with your, with your community, then the niyamas are the, the do's, the do's for the individual. So do these without restraint. And they essentially just kind of help you be more mindful. So the, I think you listed them. Did you list them already? Uh, yes. No, I don't think I did. I don't think you did. Yeah. So saucha, saucha, santosha, sapa, tapas, swadhyaya, and ishwara pranadana, or pranidana. So we've already kind of touched on them just a little bit, even just with talking about the the yamas. But saucha is purity or cleanliness. Um, and again, there are so many dimensions that you could apply this to. So there could be saucha of body, there can be saucha of mind, and there can be saucha of speech, which basically means it's asking you to look at, look at your body. How, how are you keeping it clean, both on the outside and on the inside? Are you, are you exercising your body because your body benefits from movements? Are you feeding your body pure and clean, fresh food? Are you keeping your mind clean with with regularly picking out emotions like hatred or anger or lust are you are you looking at your speech and trying to pluck out words that are ugly not only words that you say to your your friends but words that you say to yourself so it's basically trying to help you tidy up your world which is awesome yeah well and i feel like people the, you know, when you feel like that spring cleaning, like when you start to begin to like clear out your outer world, and that's usually means you need to do some cleaning up on your inner world too. I feel like because we're such a sense oriented um, species, we're like, okay, I need to, there's some dust cluttering, like, especially in your mind, there's maybe some negative like self-talk or there's kind of stuff going on in your life that you feel like you need to be rid of. And we start then physically doing it too, like cleaning out closets and, and dusting. And, you know, you feel that need to kind of purge or clean, but, Mm -hmm. um, it's, 
it's on so many levels as well that it's interesting that that makes you feel better when you physically begin to remove excess and clutter and start to purify your your living spaces Mm. that it feels internally and like energetically better in your mind and in your spirit as well you feel lighter so how they just they really all those bodies the physical body the spiritual body the emotional and mental body they all go hand in hand you can't work on one purity of of one body without working on all of them yeah absolutely absolutely and i love like what the image that you gave of like sort of clearing away this karmic sludge it's like we get so caught up in doing doing and gaining and um you know collecting again kind of back to that aparigraha and esteya it's like what we're actually seeking is the sense of lightness and you really only get that when you put in like this work of cleaning of letting stuff go which you can kind of say that that's really what yoga translates to being is the the art or the science of learning how to let go like get get rid of stuff like be lighter and that that's found through satcha for sure I totally agree. And I feel like, again, this kind of just threads right into Santosha, which is contentment, feeling gratitude. Oh, my favorite. I'm I'm like, yes. (laughs) Um, Like even that, like feeling gratitude for what you have, even when you're releasing, um, you know, and maybe purifying some thoughts and things like that, when you're doing some of this work with a sense of gratitude, like at some point it served you at some point. It, you needed it or wanted it, or it was some part of what was meant for you at that time, but it's no longer meant for you. And you're, as you're creating this sense of purity within your life on the physical and spiritual realm, how feeling gratitude and contentment for what you do have and where you are um, really amplifies your, all the other, the limbs of yoga. Yes. Um, there's a very famous, I think it's Brene Brown. She says, no amount of self-improvement can make up for your lack of self-acceptance. Yes. Yeah. Brene Brown. I love her. (laughs) Yes, I do too. I love her work. So it's cultivating on purpose, the belief that you're lacking in nothing and helps you understand. And I am so, I'm I'm such a, um, I'm guilty of this, that busyness is addictive and it really kind of operates from this sense of emptiness that you need to do more and be more that more and more and more is always better um and that is ultimately what sets us up for suffering it's like we don't actually need any of these activities or achievements to prove your worth so you're able to replace the busyness with just beingness and realize like I'm okay. Like I, I, I'm content. I have everything I need. Everything is unfolding as it should. And it just helps you take a breath and slow down. Yeah. Well, and honestly, we've been so, our society is just so conditioned to respond. You figure text messages, emails, notifications, all of these things where we don't have the opportunity or we haven't been taught, I think, how to be content in the moment. I think that gets passed over for you know, achieving and they're like, oh, connection. But some of that connection to self is equally as important. And kind of when you release that expectation of the need to respond, you're able to feel the gratitude and contentment within each moment. As Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it helps nip in the bud, the, the habit of the mind. So the mind, it's designed to think, right? 
like a, and it's designed to look for problems because it wants to solve. So say for example, you're like in a, in a traffic jam. Santosha kind of helps you just be like content even in that. It helps you say, I am in a traffic jam <laughs> rather than my day is totally ruined because this idiot in front of me had to blah, 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 like, and just goes off on this like tangent, making up this story. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, we, we all do that. So Santosha just helps you see the moment as it is and be like, okay, this moment sucks. But then, but then it can end there. It doesn't have to keep going. Right. Your emotions don't have to keep getting like triggered and you don't have to keep reacting. It just helps you be awake to the moment and feel it as it is without going overboard or getting lost in the story. Yeah. Or kind of taking that, that, that emotional upset to go with you. Yeah. For the day. Like you don't need to have carry that on throughout your entire day. It bleeds into tomorrow and all of these things. Like it can just be what it is and yeah. belong. Yeah. So Santosha, I mean, I, I, I find myself often saying just Santosha, Santosha just to myself, to remind myself like, traffic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. I really do. So that one, that one helps me a lot because like you said, contentment, it's, it's a hard thing to teach and it's an even like harder thing to learn. I think it really just comes with um, life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then um, let's see, we did Sacha Santosha. Then the next one would be Tapa. <laughs> and not not the delicious Spanish food. Although you can have those as well. <laughs> I feel like yeah, you can. Like I, I do love tapas. <laughs> so tapas, I've heard it often translated as like the, I guess the art of accepting pain or mm -hmm. another one of my favorites is I've the ache of, that. oh really? Yeah. So the, the ache of austerity. So tapas means like Oh gosh, tapas, like this burning, burning enthusiasm or austerity. You could even think of it as like the science of character building. Mm, yes. meaning, yeah, meaning that when you have tapas, you have the four D's. Sharat Joyce said this actually. So he said that you need devotion, dedication, discipline, and determination. Like all of those encompass what it is to have tapas. I love that. Yeah, so it, it means like to be on this path, this yogic path. It takes tapas, dedication, discipline, determination, and devotion to come back because naturally we're going to stray from this path. So it's acknowledging that this, this path of the, the yogi to maintain balance is very difficult and it's something that you have to keep returning to. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a, a painful process to have dedication. It's sometimes painful to have devotion, to have discipline and determination. My cat is playing with me. <laughs> like, Hello. I'd like to be on the podcast too. Yeah, she is. She's beautiful. So, I mean, like, think about it. I mean, I teach a 6 a.m. class Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. There is a pain that I feel when my <laughs> alarm goes off at 5 a.m. Girl, me too. There, yeah, there, there's a pain that I feel when somebody invites me to go do something fun and I have to say, like, no, I'm sorry, I've practiced. Like, there is this sacrifice that you're making to maintain this this discipline and that's what it's talking about it's like the the pain of letting stuff go or saying no to some things that so that you can keep saying yes to yoga so that's one way to think of it thinking of um tapas and in a fomo culture like i think people do not uh realize the value in foregoing some things so that way you can gain something for a more eternal um, happiness or a more eternal fulfillment, mm. um, like getting up for yoga at 6am, like it's, or, you know, even maintaining a, a, a workout program or anything like that, 
it is hard. Mm-hmm. You no know, one said like maintaining a healthy body was easy, but you know, maintaining a healthy spirit or anything like that, when you want to achieve in your job, you do things that are uncomfortable that push you out of your comfort zone. It is the same when you're growing your spirit and when you're growing um, a deeper connection to self. Like it is yeah. that discipline of continuing to return to things that still make you uncomfortable. Yeah, for sure. The the pain of purification. Like um, there's this analogy of like, it's like you're trying to walk through the desert to to an oasis. And it's like, I think Lao, Lao Tzu, he said, you might end up where you're going if you just don't turn around. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, so often we we embark on this journey and then we, we meet the first obstacle and we're like, nope, I'm out and turning around. Instead of just staying the course that you will arrive if you just don't give up, like don't turn around, just keep stay on the course. And that, that constant recalibration is what it means to have tapas because it, it, it takes an ache, like a burning desire that no matter what, you're going to stay on course. Yeah. And, and this applies again, I feel like all of these applies to not only just like your spiritual body and your, your spirit itself, but also like your physical body, your emotional body, like noticing when things bother you and leaning in anyways like Mm -hmm. it's okay to be uncomfortable and instead of leaning into the pleasures so much learning to lean into the pain a little bit more and because then you're like wow I did it like once that that pain period has passed um I read it in a book um I can't remember which book it was but relating this to like a controlled burn in a field Mm. like you have to burn away certain things that are not serving you in order for new you know, growth to happen. It it has to be, and it's nourished by the burn. For sure. Yeah, for sure. You have to move past some of that, but you have to have it first in order for it to be uncomfortable so that you can learn. Like there's all the stages are necessary, but if you turn away from the painful part, you don't get the blessings. Yeah. And again, like with what we were talking about in the beginning of like just doing the same thing, like there's something to be said, this level of mastery that comes from someone who's done something like 10,000, 10 million times. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like the, the, there's this meditative state that settles into the body when the, bo- like the mind is no longer thinking, it becomes meditative. And that's not just to say for anything that you do with your body or the physical, whether you're practicing yoga or like a chef chopping an onion or like a, a violinist playing their instrument like you can you can see this the practice in somebody who's really put in the hours but that only can come when you've crossed the desert like you have to put in the work of just continually returning 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 so that you can slip into that those those deeper those deeper stages yes yes which again i mean i feel like we say this every time we move on to like a new one but like (laughs) okay so like go into like svaryaya like the like self-study portion of this is like again self-study and to continue to come back to purifying your yourself body mind and spirit and really getting to know who you are and peeling away those layers is hard and there are things that you uncover that you're like damn, I do not like that layer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, you said it. So self-study or swadhyaya, it's also a study of like sacred text. And it's calling you to always be a student. Because mm-hmm. I love this. I love this. I heard this once and I, I like want to get it tattooed on my forehead. <laughs> that ignorance has no beginning, but it has an end. There is a beginning, but no end to knowledge. 
Yes. Oh my gosh. I love that. Isn't that great? I mean, like ignorance, like it has no beginning, but it, but it can come to an end. But once you start learning, like there's, it never ends. So don't even close yourself off to being a student because, and I, I think of this all the time. It's almost like, well, when it, it, it gets kind of complicated when we think about like religion and a lot of people confuse yoga for religion but really yoga is all about truth uncovering truth which is mainly what we're talking about here with swadhyaya or self-study but think about swadhyaya as like you're like this little honeybee and you just want to taste the nectar from all the flowers just to reaffirm your your love for sweet truth like we're just looking for truth and just be this honeybee be open to hearing what others have to say, looking for our similarities, not our differences. And I think of this most often when I think about like religion, it's like, I'm not, I'm not here to judge what you believe. I'm looking for what we agree upon rather than what we disagree upon. Like, what is it that we share? Yes. And I love that little image, like just be a little honeybee looking and flying around for truth and sweetness. Well, well, and even like when you're saying like, okay, again, hi, honeybee, like, it's not particular as to like what flower nectar it's drinking. It wants mm-hmm. to partake in a little bit of, it wants to partake in all of it. So it, you can really assimilate all of the knowledge you can. Yeah. And honestly, the more that you know, the more expansive your mind can be to experiences too. When you're, when you go to do something, if you are so closed off in your ways of thinking, even when you travel, that you can't look at other people's um, cultures and things like that with an open mind and a way to kind of look at it and experience it in your own way. If you're closed off to that, you then rob yourself of just experiencing other people in their, what their truth is. Yeah, exactly. And I love that you're using the word experience because experience or this experience of life is the best teacher there in the Bhagavad Gita they describe which is one of them kind of the sacred texts of India it's a story that basically paints the the human condition of like the struggle the epic between like good and evil within it paints it like as a war without so for those of you that haven't read now actually oh yes I love the Bhagavad Gita so they talk about the different levels of like knowledge of knowing and that the The first level would be like just hearing about something, like receiving knowledge from somebody else's opinion. Mm -hmm. And then the next would be like seeing it for yourself. So you can think of it almost like fire. Like if if somebody was telling you about fire and you've never heard about fire, then you could hear them and start to understand what fire is. Then you could see fire with your own eyes, like from a distance, you could see it and then really start to believe that it exists, have a sense of knowledge about it. But then there's the highest form of knowledge, which is like cooking with the fire, like working with it and creating a change. So back to like our honeybee analogy, like (laughs) your knowledge, your knowledge is meant to be ingested and absorbed. You couldn't look at the word honey and lick it and understand its sweetness. Like you have to taste the honey, like ingest it and become it to really know and appreciate it. And that's kind of like what Swadhyaya is saying, like, don't just hear somebody else's truth, like read old texts, yes, but also study yourself, like break yourself apart, ingest everything within to like really embody it all. Yes. Well, and honestly, I don't think, I don't think you can really study truth unless you study all aspects, either the, the light and the dark, you know, you have to get to some of those shadow pieces, some of those um, experiences that you're like, Ooh, the fire burned. 
mm-hmm. or oh I don't like that like that nectar is not for me but I, mm-hmm. I dabbled I tasted you know I, yeah. I, I tried it that's that's yeah. my rule at my house like kids you don't have to eat the whole thing but you do have to try one bite like yeah just try to experience something in a way that that again is getting making you uncomfortable but yeah. it then shows you things that maybe that you don't like or that it is not for you or you know maybe something that you do like that you thought you weren't going to yeah and truth like we were saying truth is so vast and expansive there's this i'm i'm all about images i'm sorry i'm throwing out like 12,000 no, images helps people learn i think especially when they're just listening so go for it <laughs> but um like there's this old parable that uh, there's this elephant right and i think you and i have talked about this before there's this giant elephant and there are two people there's one man at the front who's holding on to the the trunk of the elephant and then the man is in the, another man is in the back and he's holding on to the leg of the elephant and they're both describing the elephant but because of the different parts that they're holding the description sounds like vastly different. And you can kind of think of it like that. Like truth is so big. Like it's so big that we can't possibly, like one person can't possibly encompass or understand it all. And that's why we have these different colors, different descriptions for ultimately this same thing. So it helps you kind of appreciate the point of view that somebody else has, like where your blind spots are and that you've got to be open to listening um, and then not only listening, but putting it to the own, like your own science, like you've got to put it to the test yourself and figure out if it works for you too. Yeah. It's, and it, I don't know about you, but I would much rather be at the front end of the elephant in this uh, scenario, <laughs> <laughs> but, but really like you just, there's no way. And I think some of that too is taking other people's truths. And again, seeing what you identify with it, what feels true also to you, and then just releasing any judgment. It's just somebody else's experience. Let them have that instead of creating walls for where mm-hmm. your truth ends and another begin. We can all, you know, th- I love the, the kind of like analogy. There are some, um, there are some like subdivisions and stuff like that, that you buy a home. There are no like walls for your backyard where mm-hmm. we live. There are walls everywhere. Like this is mine. This is my truth. But really they, they don't have any walls in their backyards and everyone plays and goes outside and, and things like that. And there's not this yours and mine. Although I have my own home, we all sit in this truth together and I've accepted what's good for me and what's right for me and what feels good for my soul. And I honor that you feel the same, but we can find this middle ground, this, you know, backyard with no walls. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I would like to live someplace like that because I feel like there's a lot of grass. There's not a whole lot of grass in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> it really isn't. <laughs> oh my gosh. So Okay, so that was Swadhyaya. Then the the last of the the fifth and final of the five niyamas is Ishwara Pranidana. Um, and this one is either living living your life as a prayer or finding the times in life for devotion or ultimately surrender to God, surrender to divinity. So this one is beautiful. It, it, it helps me understand that surrender is not like a cop-out. It's not a, it's not a bad thing. It's not waving your flag to give up. It's rather understanding that there's only so much action that you can do in life. I mean, we kind of already touched upon this. And one of my students actually painted the picture really beautifully. It's like with you, with you shooting an arrow, you can have the bow, you can have the arrow, and you can pull the arrow back, but at some point, 
you have to let go of the arrow. Well, it's like you have no control over the wind. Yeah, yeah. So it helps you sort of surrender your control in areas that you actually don't have control. You're letting go of this idea of really stability because nothing in life is is stable and stuff. Everything is moving. Everything is constantly in flux and changing. And the more you can accept that reality, the more you're, you realize that surrender is actually this divine invitation that we should accept at every possible moment. That you, there's only so much you can control and let go of the outcome because it's out there. It's out of my control. So rather than just paddling upstream like the salmon, surrender and go with the flow, ride the currents and let yourself be supported. I love that you touched on it in the very beginning too, that surrender is not passive. Because um, I think sometimes we get to this one and it's like, okay, like this is the, this is the, um, um, savasana at the end of class and it's like yes and no like again this is where all of the work 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 that we've done to cultivate um, this you know shedding of things that are no longer serving to expose our truth this is where your truth is exposed and you have no control over how much you shed at a certain time or anything like that you've done the work now you just have to let your body be and accept the truth mm-hmm. um, you touched on it too, that the, in the surrender is the absorption time. Yes. Like that, that downtime is where the, the lessons like settle in, where, where you give yourself time to marinate because it'd be like, it'd be like, I mean, this is kind of what the asana practices do anyway. It'd be like making this wonderful meal, but then not eating it. Like, like with Thanksgiving yesterday, it'd be like, imagine if you cooked your Thanksgiving food it's like, <laughs> and then I- just didn't ingest it, like didn't yes. give yourself time to eat it. Like the saying, you can't have your cake and you can't bake your cake and eat it too. I'm like, I'm sorry, if I'm baking a cake, I'm eating it. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, that's like what, that's what it, if you were to give it an image, that's what it kind of presents itself to me. It's like, you've got to do the deed, but then give yourself the time to, to settle. Yeah. And um, I think to a lot of, I feel like some of this, and especially in our modern day, like times is a lot of we feel like we've done all the work and we create this expectation of a end result around the work. And when it doesn't happen the way that we anticipated and the way that we thought to, there's this kind of resentment, this feeling of I deserved this, I did all the work, and this almost attitude of entitlement because of placing that judgment on the work that was put in or the you know, the time on your, your, even like your, your mat, your physical practice, you're like, I should be able to get my leg behind my head. Now I come, you know, this many days a week, I practice every single day, da, 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 da. And there's this expectation for Mm -hmm. how then your physical practice or anything else in life that you work at should be. And when it doesn't go that way, you really rob yourself of the, um, I think the, the gifts that come in the surrender. Like yeah. sometimes that means, no, you may not be able to get your leg over your head, but you're able to do this really great arm balance now because you've developed all this strength through coming back to your, your mat every single day and practicing. So maybe yeah. flexibility isn't there, but your maybe mobility is different in certain joints. Maybe your strength is different in certain, um, you know, postures or whatever. Like there's always this beauty and this gift in just surrendering for what actually happened 
when you did the work as opposed to expecting something to happen because you did the work. Yeah, exactly. And it, it really just helps redirect you again to like what's important and what is important. It's, it's our, it's our peace, our joy, like our happiness throughout. Cause that's really everything that we do is we think it's going to make us happy or we think it's going to make us joyful. That's why we do anything and everything is because we're looking, searching for happiness. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I could keep going, yeah. but I'm, <laughs> I know. Oh gosh. <laughs> but uh, so speaking of like asana practices, like that kind of leads right into where there is this surrender, the next limb of yoga. Now that we've covered all the aspects of the yamas and the niyamas, which is really how our, um, how we deal with ourselves and kind of with the world and those interactions, mm-hmm. um, the asana practices clearly are very physical, very much. I think that's when we dive into more of coming out of the yeah, the uh, limbs that are of the mind and more of the limbs that are of the physical body. Yes. Okay. So asana, and this is what mostly everybody thinks about when they think of yoga or just the postures. So the, the asanas are very, I mean, thank goodness for the asanas because it's really the first doorway that people use to access these deeper realms. So there's, you were talking about the different bodies. So, um, Anamaya is the, the the physical body, right? So it's the the physical dimension in which we can access or play with really the the duality of opposites. So the body is is given to us. It's like this spacesuit in which we can experience our senses. That's how we experience the world through you know your five senses. So with, because of these senses, we're constantly at the play of our our cravings and our aversions. Our bodies are the first doorway in which we experience, hey, I like that. I want more of that. Mm -hmm. But then also the opposite of that is like, oh, not so much. Like, I totally (laughs) don't want that. And I don't want any of it. And I never want it again. So our body gives us the the first taste of duality of of the opposites. Uh, So describe to people then how they experience that duality within the physical. So are you talking about like, um just like strengthening lengthening like what so yeah both put that's that a great question so i mean think about it when you when you go into even just like a lunge in your leg <laughs> a lunge in your leg like the, the first couple moments you're like okay like this isn't so bad like i, I could use a little more of this strength but then depending on the duration at which you're staying at some point everything is going to get really hard and you're going to start to have a total aversion to the, the posture itself. Like, I don't want any more of this. You start to have an aversion to the teacher who's making you hold it. <laughs> you start to have all of these like outspurts of uh, emotions that are being triggered from your senses. So that the sensation of feeling is giving you all this feedback and you start to either have a craving or aversion for it. So because the, the body is tangible and it's physical, something that we can see and work with, it's the easiest of the bodies. Uh, the dimensions of you, like you were saying, the physical, emotional, mental, breath, all these different types of bodies that we have, it's the easiest to work with. So um, yeah, and it's interesting because in the Yoga Sutras, Patanjali says that Yoga Sutra 2.46, it says, Sthira Sukham Asanam, which means your, your asana or your posture should be steady and easy. So it's, it's hilarious because he's taking this thing that we think is so important. like this, we, we hold the physical practice up so highly, but he totally 
kind of pulls the rug out from underneath it and says, your, your practice should have two things. Like it should have effort, but it should also have ease, which is what we were just talking about with Ishwara Panadana. It's like, you can try, but you also have to release. So there needs to be this balance, this balance of both working and then releasing all at the same time. That's what makes like asana really an art because it takes an art. It's not just pounding your way through these postures or enduring something. It's like withstanding something with grace, with breath, with, with, with um, surrender. Well, and that's what I love. Like you're when, so I, in Mackenzie's intro, so I take her class frequently. She's, she, was my instructor and one of the best things that you say I think every single class when I hear it I'm like yes is sometimes you need to relax into the posture to really get the full experience of it so in a posture that is difficult and I feel like you always say it when it's like splits or something like that that's really hard or <laughs> something that creates a lot of aversion in the mind because um, sometimes the relaxing is not just the physical relaxing, although it is, but also the mental, right? Yeah. Your mind is like, this hurts, this hurts, this hurts. And instead of having that process running through your mind, having the process of this comes easy, this is, this is temporary, change is inevitable, I won't be here forever, although it's mm-hmm. a long time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, and that's what they, they kind of, or Patanjali, at least he goes on to say that the mastery of the postures then isn't about like doing the posture. Like it's not about the full expression or binding your leg behind your head or your, if you're in splits, like your hips touching the floor, it's not about that. Mastery of a shape is actually your, your unshakable like freedom, which is found through like uniting those opposites of effort and ease. So it's, it's the perfect marriage of both ease and efforts that help you not only like overcome the ups and downs on your yoga mat, like you're talking about, but also in your life. So it's like understanding that the, these unit, these opposites are teaching me how to just be free from all that. Well, and there's so much more, I think that even like the physical practice, um, kind of leading into pranayama, like the, the practice itself is not just physically moving the body, but also your breath within the body, your pranayama. So like the next limb of like the body aspect of, of the eight limbs of yoga. Yeah. So if, um, asana is kind of this body control, the, the pranayama is your energy manipulation or breath control. This, this is a really fascinating limb all on its own. So think of your respiratory system and your nervous system are really closely related. You could think of them as almost like two sides of the same coin. So when you're stressed, your breath, like if stress was one side of the coin, then the other side of the coin would be how stress like manipulates itself in your breath. So think about it. When you're stressed, your breath is kind of like short and choppy. Mm-hmm. When you're calm, say we have another coin, one side of the coin is calm, then the other side is how the feeling calm affects your breathing, which is usually like long and deep breaths. So pranayama or breath control techniques help you intentionally exploit that phenomenon. So it's saying if you're feeling like anxious, then you can take your breath and breathe in a certain way to trigger your nervous system to be more calm. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is why you know, when you're holding these postures, even like going back to the lunge, 
where your mind starts to wander into like, this is hard, this is hard, because we've been here for long periods of time, utilizing this limb, utilizing your breath to really control your nervous system and calm your nervous system to stay through the hard things. Yeah. And so you can reap the blessings and the benefit, which is, you know, a stronger body, a more resilient mind, all of those things. All Absolutely. Breathing, you know, shifting your perspective. I really think everything is found in the the breath. The my teacher often says that the the greatest adjustment you can make is always returning to the breath. That breath is the the passport to your peace. That any time you remember breath is a, a moment where you wake up. Like it's your it's the the instantaneous coming back to presence. Well, and it's the only thing that that happens in our body um, automatically and just goes on without thinking and also can be controlled by us as well, which is, um, I think, a huge doorway that we that in our day to day lives we overlook that you really do have the power through your breath to shift how the circumstance or the situation, the experience is happening by Mm -hmm. just creating a more peaceful internal landscape. Yeah, absolutely. And the breath body, that's what people actually are addicted to when they come to a yoga class, whether they know it or not. The the deep breathing triggers such a relaxation response in the body that it's it's addictive. And when you miss yoga for, for a little bit and you're like, I just feel off, like I just feel like I can't really articulate what it is that feels better when I go to yoga. And 100% it's the breathing. Like people just don't breathe deeply unless they're told to, you know, in a, mm-hmm. in a yoga in a yoga class so it's the greatest gift really that you could give to anybody as a teacher if you're a teacher just constantly reminding people to take a deep breath I mean it it goes goes so much deeper than we even know yeah well and I think too this is why there's so much um at least I feel like there's a lot more awareness happening around just breath work um and experiences where I think the yoga class is becoming a lot more uh breath focused and a lot less posture focused and asana focused um, in the sense of you can create that experience by breath alone without even moving. Mm, yeah. And you can have a very transformative practice even if you just sit and breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another, the other limb that, um, that kind of encompasses the body as well is the pratyahara. And because it creates, even when you close down your eyes and you begin to breathe, um, mm. that's the first sen- the first experience of it is that sense withdrawal, um, mm. which then again allows you to experience your body and spirit in a completely different way when you shut off one of those senses. Yeah, and at sense withdrawal, it seems like such a difficult thing. Um, but really this we we all have this experience all the time. Think about like when you're watching a movie that's like totally captured your attention. You could be sitting watching that movie and somebody's talking to you and you could like not hear them. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what like Pratyahara feels like. It's not only sense withdrawal, but it's sense redirection. Like you're so mm-hmm. focused on something that all like everything else kind of blurs around the edges. So in the yoga practice, like the asana. Where you're, where you're on your mat, teachers encourage this in, a, in, a, in many ways, mainly like the drishti or the gaze, like focusing your eyes helps you withdraw from distraction around you because you're focusing on a single point. Uh, the bandhas or like the, the locks within your body um, help you kind of take your awareness and fine tune it. And then the breath also, when you focus on the breathing, it gives you something to harness onto rather than just being 
pulled in every which way, wherever you're, usually wherever your eyes take you, your energy follows. So like where your attention goes, energy flows. You need to kind of focus your attention so that energy can flow there. Yeah. Well, and, and even experience, I think it allows you to experience, have the experience of yoga inside of your body, as well as like the external, you know, you're, if you're sitting in a posture that's uncomfortable, um, some of that experience then begins, you know, in your mind to shift and to change and things like that. So really refocusing where you're placing that attention and withdrawing all of the excitement that's happening in your mind around like, this hurts, this hurts, this hurts to, Mm -hmm. you know, this is easy. My breath is calming my, you know, and really Mm -hmm. like inhale, exhale, like, and creating this like pivot in how you experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just so, it's kind of mind blowing when you really think about like awareness and consciousness, how powerful and cool it is that your awareness has this ability to either broadly expand or really focalize and zoom in like Mm. you have that power and so often usually whenever we're suffering a lot it's because we're like so zoomed in and focused on like one particular thing which is which is essentially what pratyahara is like you can zoom in on something good or you can zoom in on something bad Mm. and so i think just the the exercise of taking your awareness and like closing it and opening it with pratyahara is really beneficial because sometimes you need to zoom in, but sometimes you also need to like take a step back and like see the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. So think of your, your, the muscle of concentration as a muscle and exercise it in the sense of making it big and making it small, contracting and expanding, expanding. And I, I think we're not encouraged to do that enough. I think it's because we're again, so motivated, motivated by the five senses in our physical body we allow Mm -hmm. all that experience and all that sensation to run wild with how our mind thinks and how we operate in our day-to-day life based on sensation. But when you begin to shut off and redirect focus, you're able to actually control your thoughts, your mind, how the experience and circumstance happens out on the physical world because you're mentally aware of where your focus is. So you're not deterred by all this other noise. Yeah. And I really prefer the the word redirection because it makes me feel like it's not a bad thing that my focus, you know, like withdrawal makes me feel like I'm like, oh, I shouldn't be here. Oh, yeah, like <laughs> when, yes. Whereas like redirection makes me feel like, hey, it's okay that you've like landed on this place, but you also just, just because you're the producer, you're also the experiencer. So you have the power in both ways to manipulate like your vision whether it's on the outside world or the inside world. So take back your power, like, like redirect yourself. You have that control. Well, and utilizing like Pratyahara to just um, redirect um, our focus allows us to then again, begin to practice Daharna, which is more of a concentration, the art of really honing in on something and um, then allowing it to expand and, um, take up space. Yeah, Daharna. So concentration, it's this single pointed focus that we were discussing within Pratyahara. And the, the best example that I can think of is like when you're having a conversation with someone, like how you and I are right now, and it's like, I'm just hanging on to your every word. Like I'm totally present to what you're saying. And it's almost to the point of where you're not necessarily like thinking of a response. You're just like mm-hmm. in deep conversation. 
Yeah. It's like when time passes and you're like, wow, have we been talking for two hours? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> have we? <laughs> no, no, we have not. No. Okay. Not like, yeah. <laughs> but I thought I would throw that in there. I see if you, I was like, oh, you did catch it. Look at you go. You're such a good listener because you're so <laughs> practicing Daharna. <laughs> like, wait, what? <laughs> Yeah. So, um, that these, these six, okay. So remember in the, in the beginning, when I said the, the first six are things that we do. So everything that we've discussed are things that we do. Now, these last two that we're about to go into are things that happen to us as a result of this effort that we've put in of yamas, niyamas, asana, um, pranayama, pranayahara, dahana. Now, dhyana is a state that you slip into after concentration. So it, it becomes your concentration becomes meditation. And this is kind of pure meditation or even communion. You can think of this almost like whenever somebody says like, oh, they're just so in the zone. It's just this steady, uninterrupted flow. And in, I think it's a light on yoga. He describes uh, dhyana as compared to like a, a stream of oil being poured out of a bottle slowly and steadily. So from the outside, the oil looks like it's still, but really it's this continuous unbroken flow of outpouring oil in the same rhythm and pace so it looks deeply still but it's really just perfect movement perfect movement that just keeps going in the steady stream well and i think too this is where people struggle when we speak of meditation and and yoga in particular is really known for the value that they place on meditation but i think when people describe it as this constant flow right of deep kind of um, concentration, people don't realize that there has been all this work. Again, you had to get through the other six limbs, right, to get to this point. And so those who experience this deep flow of, of, of feelings of meditative state um, have done all of the hard work of going through the sense withdrawal of Pratyahara, who have gone through Daharna, who have really, you know, honed in on their concentration and are now at the steady flow. And I think people struggle the most when they're trying to meditate because they think that they should automatically hop into this natural state of um, equanimity within the mind, that your, your thoughts patterns are just going to cease because you sat down and said, I'm going to meditate. Mm. Um, but meditation can be a flow of movement even like I notice sometimes in my practice being so because I already know what this is the beautiful thing about Ashtanga because it is uh, formulated in a very specific way and the the postures never change as far as sequence you can once you know it get into the state of breathing and sense withdrawal and physical practice all at the same time and it bleeds right in to Dayana yeah. You're, you are meditating and moving at the same time, but you have to go through all of these steps. So those who sit down to meditate, I think get most frustrated when that natural flow of experience of meditation doesn't come so quickly right away. Absolutely. And I love that you're articulating it in the sense of like actually sitting down and meditating. But I think too, like, especially Patanjali, he's saying like, if you're wanting to take this practice and live it, then what does it mean to like have a meditative conversation with someone? Like, what does it mean to cook with meditation? Like cook with Diana? What does it mean to drive your car with Diana? So it's saying like, it doesn't have to just be like what you're doing on your mat or when you go to like physically meditate, like every part of your life could have the expression of Diana 
if yeah. you want to. Yeah. Yeah. Where you kind of just get into this, like, it's like, again, like conversations or, you know, when you're, you're, um, for like me, when I'm creating like programs and stuff like that, and I'm writing content and it's just flowing effortlessly. Mm -hmm. Like, I just know how I want to speak to my, my clients. I know how I want to help them and serve them. And it's just like word vomiting out and I'm not closing my eyes. All my senses are like a going, but yeah. I'm just so in the zone, so to speak, you know? Yeah. That and back back to that surrender thing. It's like, you've finally just gotten out of your own way. There's this sense of like exhaling of like allowing yourself to receive rather than trying to like work to produce. Like there's this, there's this softening that has to happen for Diana yes. to appear. Yes. And releasing that expectation. Like, yeah. like you're just doing the work and surrendering, like, yeah. and allowing it to happen. I feel like Diana is one of those things that cannot be forced. It's a thing that happens to you. <laughs> yes. you cannot, yeah. <laughs> again, why are they all so interconnected? <laughs> they, yeah, they. I mean, they are. And samadhi is the most like beautiful of all. And it can be such a lofty like concept. But I really think that everybody has experienced seconds of samadhi, which is the the last limb. Samadhi would be like absorption or oneness. Total. If you took that communion, that pure meditation, that being in the zone. Samadhi is absorption. And, and this is why I think of like artists all the time, whenever I think of Samadhi, because it's like, have you ever watched somebody when you can't tell the difference between the person that's doing the thing and the, the thing itself, or like, there's no distinction between the dancer and the dance, the, the song and the singer, like just when two things like are so they couldn't be present without each other. That's like what Samadhi is. It's like, it's such a hard experience to put into words because it's, it's so big <laughs> that it's kind of undescribable. But any time that you've ever felt just like the sobering moment in life where you're like so acutely aware of how connected everyone and everything is and you feel, you feel such like love and peace, that's, that's a second of samadhi. I feel like, I agree. I think so many people have experienced it in a way that, that is not thought of as a traditional way like for me when I think about it I think both times like when I had my babies and right mm -hmm. after you usually put them on your chest mm -hmm. there are I'm telling you like so many people in the room I had one doctor that was like wow there's an entire party in here I was like I don't care they all wanted to be here for the birth come on in mm -hmm. and but that moment of nothing else was going on but there were I would like at least 12 people in my room and there's somebody petting my head and like wiping sweat and stuff like that. And I had no recollection of anything else that was going on besides this like feeling of pure love. Mm -hmm. And it, it may only last for a few moments, but just like the overwhelming experience of love, I think is mm -hmm. usually what I equate this most to. Not necessarily yeah. for me, it happened during those times, but I think where you stand in awe of like the oneness you know, yes. it happens like when you're sitting outside, like at the beach and you're like, the waves are crashing the, the, you know, the sand is soft and you feel this, the warmth of the sun. And you're like, wow, I am sitting on the edge of a continent. How yeah. crazy. And like this moment of like, nothing, you can't hear all the, the people that are at the beach. You don't, you know, nothing else, but like this, you kind of, it's, I feel like a very standing in awe of, 
of just like the vastness of love, really. Absolutely. And how we were talking about those opposites, how like everything is kind of pulled in the opposites. Samadhi is that moment where the opposites or duality like burns away, where there's just no distinction. And you feel like you were saying this total connection that is completely overwhelming and burns away like all sense of separateness. And it's like, you're just basking in this feeling of like love and connection. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, and, and I think too, when you begin to practice, I love that the asana and the physical practice really invites people then to experience the other forms of yoga and, and, or the other limbs of yoga to really implement you don't realize like like that like how we were just talking you're probably practicing the other limbs of yoga and you have no idea but when you start to kind of like look at a systematized way of of really fine-tuning your entire being um so you can experience it in all in all um like the entire spectrum um i feel like then you're like okay you kind of search for these the pain points and the pleasure points instead of being just gravitating towards one, you recognize both. All of these experiences that you're having as a human, um, I, I think when you look at them in a different way of just not like, um, like, oh, I'm just working out or I'm just, you know, I'm just breathing. Oh, I'm just closing my eyes and really experience, it allows you to experience everything in the present moment, mm. which creates an opportunity for you to experience life more fully, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That was beautiful. So, I mean, this this is so like there's so much to say within these and we barely scratched the surface, but as far as like the the yamas, the don'ts for the society of ahimsa non-harming, satya not lying, asteya not stealing, aparigraha non-hoarding and brahmacharya energy management and then all of the the yama or the niyamas of saucha santosha Tapa, Swadhyaya, Ishwari, Pranadana, those just help you clean up your life, both how you interact with everyone and then how you treat yourself. And then everything else, the asanas, the physical postures, pranayama, your breath control, pratyahara, your sense of drawl, daharana of concentration, dhyana of pure meditation, and ultimately samadhi of absorption. It's all just this ladder that we're like trying to climb up and they lead progressively to one another. And it's a everyday thing. Like it's this continual journey. Like it's never like you arrive at Samadhi and you stay there for forever. Like you like can- Like I am the yoga. <laughs> yeah, like you can come out of that. So it's this, it's like we said with tapas, like it's this discipline of like mind training every day that can get so like- deep that it affects everything that you do like we were saying like it doesn't just have to be this thing that you're doing on your mat whether you're practicing these postures or like sitting down in meditation like everything can be colored with these things oh I love that I feel like honestly this conversation has been so just epic as far as the um illuminating the vastness of yoga and also the simplicity like it can be just as simple as enjoying the meal, the bite that you just put in your mouth for what it is. And as deep as like, who are we in the universe? And, you know, <laughs> things. And but that's what's so beautiful about truth. Truth is like so simple, but then you're like, when you really think about it, it can feel like so epic at the same time. But I think that's what makes truth truth is that it's big in like the most simple way. I completely, completely agree. I so appreciate you 
coming on here and sharing all of this with all of the listeners. I think too, it helps really to create a more, especially because I love the way that you speak, which is part of the reason I asked you to be on here is even using the visualization stuff like that helps people understand and not, and yoga not be so elusive and um, like Mm -hmm. mystical and, oh, it's just like spiritual practice. Like, no, there are so many practical ways to experience higher states of consciousness in your day-to-day by implementing all of these rungs of the ladder, right? It's true. It's so true. And thank you. I mean, you too. You definitely speak in a way that's accessible and real in in the modern world because these things can seem antiquated or dated, but really like truth never gets old. So it's like, how do we just find a way to help others do it in our in our day and age is for sure a struggle and a challenge but I'm so grateful thank you Shalane oh I just love you thank you I hope all of you listeners um really enjoyed that conversation and enjoy the takeaway please um send me a message on Instagram at Shalane Carter or you can even uh message Mackenzie if you have questions too what's what's your Instagram Mackenzie I think it's, I think it's, I am also like, what's my Instagram? I'm pretty sure you can search Mackenzie Fly, um, M-A-K-E-N-Z-I-E, and then F-L-Y on the search bar. My my Instagram title, I think will come up as Mackenzie Fly Yoga, but I think you have to search Mackenzie Fly. Got it. Cool. Yeah. So if you have any questions, feel free to let us know. If you enjoyed the episode, we would love if you could take a screenshot of it, tag us, let us know your biggest takeaway, how you're going to maybe implement other rungs of the yoga ladder or the feel in your life and um and i hope that you really enjoy the experience of yoga in your day-to-day moving forward knowing that now you can recognize some of those things so thank you again mackenzie i appreciate you and i love you thank you i love you too i'll talk soon okay bye. bye